Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In a 1980 article published in the Journal of Data List, asked the question, do artifacts have politics? That is, does technology or the different forms of technology have within them inherent political or social power dynamics? Or is it the manner in which the technology is used that is most important? And the opposite question is important to understand as well. And that is, do politics have artifacts? Well, on the show today, we have Christina Dunbar-Hester, who is going to talk about these questions with respect to micro-radio and her new book, Low Power to the People, Pirates, Protests, and Low-Power Radio Activism. You are listening to New Books and Technology. I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. And one of the first things that we like to do on New Books and Technology is have the authors talk a little bit about themselves. So can you tell us a little bit about Christina Dunbar-Hester and how you got to this point? Just tell us a little bit about you. Sure. Um, well, I guess the first thing to note is time frame, um, because the book kind of has a, a prehistory before the research. Um, my, I guess, intellectual background in college, I studied history and sociology of science. And then after college, I was working and not in school and living in Philadelphia. And uh, it was in that historical moment, I guess, that the very first ideas about doing that project started to germinate just a tiny bit. Um, and of course, uh, in the nineties, there was a you know, crushing wave of, of hype about this new thing called the internet and, you know, people were going online and, uh, there was a lot of utopian rhetoric about how this was going to be a really revolutionary and democratizing new technology. Um, and I was, as I said, living in Philly, and Philadelphia saw the first convergence after Seattle of um, big, I guess it was called anti-globalization movement stuff and the birth of indie media. And that was happening. Um, Philadelphia was hosting the Republican National Convention in 2000. So in, uh, alongside this very, you know, big societal discourse about the internet, there was this activism happening kind of in my backyard Mm -hmm. that I wasn't directly involved in, but knew people who were, and, you know, as a young person and a curious person, um, and so thought that was sort of interesting, and these claims were being made about access to media technology as the forefront of activism. Um, And I, you know, again, thought that was interesting, if nothing else. but was also a little bit skeptical, I think, because of the training that I had already in terms of, you know, situating science and technology within culture and 
uh, seeing these progressive discourses as, you know, even if the Internet was new, these discourses about the liberatory potential of technology were not new. And so, you know, that was going on, and I was starting to get a little bit itchy and think of going back to school. And so I actually remember I went and talked to undergraduate advisors, again, in this history of science mode, you know, about the potential of going back to graduate school and doing work on these rhetorics about communication technologies. And they were encouraging of me going back to school, but very hands-off about what I was talking about as empirical Mm -hmm. work and kind of thought, well, we're history of science. We have nothing to do with this thing about media. And I didn't really understand why those things had to be separate because I thought, well, you know, this is technology and that's should be in the wheelhouse of this field. Um, but they also said that sounds like communication and media studies. We don't really, you know, kind of good luck with that. We'll write you letters, but we don't really know anything about it. And so I was scratching around looking for graduate programs using, of course, the internet. Really wasn't connected to anybody who could advise me personally and was looking at programs for doctoral work in communication and media studies. And But I also kind of knew, and not even in the back of my mind, uh, that the history of science and social studies of science and technology lens was one that I didn't want to abandon because mm-hmm. I thought it could be useful. So anyway, that, without getting too much into the weeds, when I was looking at grad school, I just kind of knew both of those things were going to be important. And when I found a program that was in science and technology studies, and kind of affirmed that there wasn't very much work about media or ICT in the field, but said, it's fine with us if you want to study that. We see no reason why we can't help you figure that out. I kind of said, okay, we're off. And that was the kind of intellectual grounding, which is to say fairly haphazard, fairly piecemeal, and fairly grasping around blindly, as as many intellectual projects often seem, I think. Um, then when I was in school and I heard, I was at the point where I was needing to embark on some independent research, and I heard about people advocating for low-power radio, that was the moment when I said, you know, aha, there must be something interesting here. So I had never heard of low-power radio activism when I was going back to school or like in the 90s, I knew that people who were doing indie media were building micro radio stations, but it was part of a bigger platform of uh, media media work. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't identified that as, you know, the more micro phenomenon I wanted to study until I guess about 2003. And so... Again, because of personal connections to people who knew people who were doing this activism, I wound up back in Philly in the summer of 2003 and approached the Indie Media, Independent Media Center um, of Philadelphia. And at that time, they had a little radio station that was sharing what was called a Class D license. Um, and that those are an old category of licenses that are super tiny. They're 10 watts, and so they're even smaller than LPFM, and they only reach, you know, a tiny portion of a neighborhood probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so this Indie Media Project was sharing this old license with another neighborhood group, and it was kind of an uneasy alliance um, as 
many very small community group projects that rely on, you know, the volunteer labor of a lot of people, including some strong personalities. Um, so right when I showed up, I thought I was going to be looking at this interplay between webcasting and FM in this very local environment and FM as part of the activist project. Uh, right when I showed up, there was a big conflict in the group between the indie media people and the neighborhood folks who had originally been holding this license. And literally, that sounds dramatic, and I guess it kind of was, someone had gone into someone else's space where the transmitter was housed and physically took it away and was hoarding it. (laughs) And then there was this big fight between, you know, various activists and community members. And so I, I showed up to think I was studying this little micro broadcasting phenomenon and doing a kind of production and reception study. And they were suddenly off the air having internal disputes. And I wasn't really welcome to go poking around with a notebook and meetings that would have been open a month or two earlier were suddenly closed to people who weren't already known to each other and, you know, working through that conflict. So I, you know, was there kind of literally with my notebook being like, who do I talk to? And being told you can't come into these spaces. It's too sensitive right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, any, any good anthropological encounter has all these things you can't control. I hung back and said, well, what can I do that won't be, perceived as invasive, uh, and I found out about this weekly tinkering project that was also an IMC project where people got together and tinkered with electronics that was radio-focused, uh, and so I hung out with them, and that was where the turn to study tinkering and the salience of technical practice kind of grew out of that because that was what I had access to, so I spent that summer doing field work, going to these meetings, and also interviewing people about the whole range of uh, radio-related work that was happening. And again, it's sort of tension with and complementarity to digital activism. Um, but it was that that moment, it was how I got introduced to Prometheus and their work. Uh, they were not broadcasting, but they were advocating for low-power FM. Um, and they were also in the same milieu. Many of the same people were involved. But um, anyway, in short, I got access to their group and not to the phenomenon I thought I was going to study and, you know, wound up sort of refocusing so that I would make them the primary field site. And they were unusual, and I thought it was justified for a number of reasons. But again, instead of looking at production use, listening, all this stuff, I wound up looking at this more... Um, meta thing of people who were not broadcasting themselves but were advocating for community broadcasting and also building radio stations that they would then walk away from and community groups would just go on the air but the radio activists themselves didn't have a hand in it after the station went up. Mm -hmm. So that was what the project turned into. And so, yeah, it, it kind of reflected, again, my intellectual trajectory as being interested in social studies of technology with a particular interest in claims about ICT, combined with some kind of personal connections to people who are doing this kind of activism and 
personal connections to Philadelphia, which is where I had been living before grad school. Uh, but Philadelphia is a unique city. There's a whole lot of media activism there. Right. And with this back there for an event in January at the Media Mobilizing Project, which is another media activist group. And it is really striking that that stuff is so prominent there. So it's a lot of things, including, you know, serendipity and haphazardness and, you know, my own curiosity, basically. <laughs> so you mentioned a couple of terms that, that I want to like bring us back to, and you're talking about field notes and anthropological study. And, you know, what, one of the things that struck me as I was looking through the book is that you use basically, and please correct me if I'm wrong, like an ethnographic kind of uh, style or methodology mm-hmm. um, to mm-hmm. do this work. Um, what, what made you choose an ethnographic kind of study of uh, Prometheus, Prometheus Radio Project and low power um, activism? Um, good question. And again, I think it's partly a matter of intellectual questions and partly a matter of almost temperament. Mm -hmm. Um, and so intellectually I was interested in this, um, contemporary phenomenon, right? It was specifically in what way is radio being, you know, interpreted as a vibrant and still living technology, even though we're also hearing all this discourse about how anything that's not digital is old news. Uh, And so that was a contemporary problem, which needs to be solved using methods that allow you to uncover, you know, contemporary life. Um, Part of it was also, in a way it ties to the, the question of studying activism. I have a lot of sympathy for a lot of, these um, activist concerns, especially, uh, you know, questions about how to build a more just and equal social world. That said, temperamentally, they're a lot better at leading the charge as activists, and I think I'm better at reflecting and writing and asking questions that, you know, address, well, why is this even, you know, the premise, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is, again, part of the project of science studies is really how do we know what we think we know and, you know, what are issues of cultural authority? Uh, and again, technology is really vested with a lot of beliefs surrounding its power. And, you know, one of my questions is kind of how do those beliefs get constructed and to what end, you know, what are the consequences for focusing on a technology or, you know, technological skill as a, political project. So again, it's a kind of combination of um, intellectual stuff uh, that anthropological or ethnographic methods would be well suited to this contemporary phenomenon. It's something I could get access to, um, you know, was able to actually get NSF funding to do. So all of that sort of instrumental stuff supporting an intellectual inquiry, but it's also temperament. I, I find myself drawn to these things, but in a different mode than someone who's participating the way that activists participate. That's less comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about like some of the, the topics you discuss in the book. And one of those topics is 
uh, deals with politics, particularly emancipatory politics, but also participatory politics and how mm-hmm. uh, the, the activists that you studied um, were using radio or conceived of radio as a medium through which um, emancipatory politics, but also participatory politics can be, I don't know, actualized or realized. And I, w- I want to know if you could talk about that a bit. Sure. And another thing to say, maybe before moving fully into that, is the historical moment when radio was an open medium that wasn't, at least in the U.S., you know, a really corporate, commercial, consolidated networked system, which is the period from the 1920s into the 1930s, you know, that's already really well understood and activists themselves are also very aware of that. Mm-hmm. So part of what's going on in the moment now, people argue, is that the internet is subject to a similar period of contestation and negotiation mm-hmm. uh, as was radio, you know, 80 years ago or something. And so another reason to look at this interplay in this moment ethnographically is it complements earlier historical work and what we know about, you know, institutions and populist concerns and, you know, corporate concerns. Uh, a lot of that, it's not identical, but a lot of the players and a lot of the concerns are not dissimilar either. And so this kind of builds upon and, and stands upon, but also um, extends you know, the historical work that's been done on political economy and media, for example. Um, As for the issues of technology and political uh, and participatory, I don't remember, you said it better than I did, but so the sort of emancipatory claims, Mm -hmm. that I think has a somewhat different legacy in the culture, which has uh, a long history um, in America of ideas of kind of rugged individualism and um, even something like the ideal of the gentleman farmer would be the idea that, you know, people live in some kind of harmonious relationship with their environment, but they also master their environment through tools. So some of the ballast, I think, for the radio activist ideas comes from that kind of lineage, but it also for them, I think, comes from, um, you know, uh, basically Marxism and the idea that you want to own the means of production. Mm -hmm. Um, So it comes from that, and it comes from also, uh, and Fred Turner's work has been really illuminating for me on this, the appropriate technology movement of the 60s and 70s, and Mm -hmm. the idea that technology can be really dehumanizing, uh, or it can be used at a more appropriate scale to um, store up interpersonal connections and foster, um, you know, better relationships at, at local levels, more meaningful human relationships. So all that stuff, I think, is actually going on as heritage in mm-hmm. this form of radio activism. But part of what's interesting about radio that the activists seize on and part of why they promote it has to do with the idea that radio is a technology that really lends itself to this kind of hands-on self-sufficiency, leveling of expertise, and transformative power. And that somehow computers are different because they're more abstruse, they're more black boxed, they're less accessible. And I'm not uh, saying that that's... 
I'm sorry. There's no digital <laughs> divide in radio, so to speak. Precisely. That's some of what they're arguing is that, you know, anyone, everyone's got a radio at home and it doesn't take much skill to be on the uh, producing end either. And that it's less expensive. It's less arcane. Uh, I think in practice, you still actually need to know quite a bit to, you know, build electronics hardware that's somewhat more of a fable than a reality but that's the argument that they're making exactly and so this this um, idea of expertise and accessibility um, according to at least what you were stating about the activists their ideology um, they attempted to close the gaps by having workshops right tinkering workshops mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, mm -hmm. go ahead. I'm sorry. So is that like reminiscent of, um, I'm I'm thinking of like paralleling this with um, people now that, you know, the buzz is everybody needs to learn how to code, right? So, yeah. Okay. I think you're squarely uh, justified in in drawing that parallel. And that's actually a direction I've been going in newer research. Um, So I don't have, I want to, you know, be very clear. I don't have anything against quote technology or coding and I'm not a Luddite and I'm not a technophobe. Sure. But I think there are really good reasons to be wary of some of these discourses. Um, and you know, I think the, for the radio activists, it partly comes from this impulse of leveling social inequality, actually. Uh, they fully recognize that technical expertise and electronics engineering knowledge was most likely to reside already with um, basically white male folks with engineering training, so college-educated, elite, masculine social identities. And so they said, you know, aha, if we can kind of open this up and say, no, tinkering isn't just for this elite group, it's for everyone, then, again, that could really be revolutionary. It could uh, you know, just in tinkering, we could enclose um, the act of tinkering could be um, forming this, you know, powerful uh, act where we're not just building radio stations, but we're redistributing expertise and building a more just social environment. And I'll, I'll also note that media activism is often cited not as an end in itself, but a means to wider social transformation and this goes at least as far back as an FCC commissioner, Nicholas Johnson, who said, whatever your first area of concern is, media should be your second, because without a democratic media or access to the media, it's really hard to advance other kinds of social change. So part of what's informing them is, you know, the project doesn't stop with building radio stations or the project doesn't stop with teaching everybody how to solder. Um, But Part of what I think is actually tricky about picking electronics tinkering as this platform for social change, uh, there's a number of things. One, it actually places a fairly high burden on people whose social identities aren't aligned already with that. Mm-hmm. It's really great to offer this as an opportunity, but to tell people who have, you know, lived adult lives who are intimidated by tech, uh, the thing you really need to know how to do or it'll all come together is learn how to solder. Um, 
that's very well intentioned, but I, I think it actually, it's its own form of kind of technocratic, you know, tyranny would be too strong, but I'm not sure why that's the route to empowerment in a way. Um, because it, it still kind of defines what counts as reasonable skills, uh, that everybody should have around this kind of technophilic project that maps onto, you know, social power already. Mm-hmm. So, that's one of the reasons I'm a bit suspicious. I would really love us to be, live in an environment and a social world where everybody has equal opportunities and equal agency and all these things. But if you're telling people who have been disenfranchised, the way you get that is learning to solder, learning to code. That that doesn't that seems like a, a narrow project, and it's still pretty technocratic. So, so even when teaching people to learn, you know, soldering and, and doing the, the production part of, uh, mm-hmm. the radio, I'm, I'm wondering though, if we look at the politics and like when I was reading your book, what stood out to me is you were asking the question like Langdon Winner, uh, or I hearken back to Langdon Winner's mm-hmm. Do Artifacts Have Politics and also the opposite of that, do politics have artifacts? And I was wondering, mm-hmm. like, if you, if you, do you think you answer the question, do artifacts have politics? Does, I guess, low power FM have politics? Um, I guess one of the things I want to underscore, and this is, you know, what I do as a scholar and as a teacher, is artifacts do have politics, but they're not necessarily inherent to the artifact. You know, what we're really interested in and what I think is, you know, bears endless, you know, study and articulation is the way that politics get married to artifacts and vice versa. Um, because again, again, I think that a lot of what's going on with radio and why, you know, radio activists here are holding it up as valuable and exemplary in these ways that doesn't adhere to the artifact. Uh, but part of what they're doing that's still interesting, even if, even if it's not inherent in the artifact, is they're articulating a set of values about communities and about electronic communication. And those values differ, I think, from a lot of what has been argued about the internet. And so that's how they become distinct from one another, actually. Uh, one of my reviewers made the point and I think I say it in the book, but I think I could say even more loudly, you know, the only reason we think that radio is totally analog and, you know, computers are digital, whatever that means, you know, the only reason there's this sort of binary divide between them is due to this rhetorical work. If you actually look at the materiality of each, there's, you know, quite a lot of digital stuff that supports radio broadcasting and also computers aren't of course um, resting on old networks and infrastructural uh, components that precede again digitality as it's been constructed mm-hmm. so um, you know I think that we we do want to be always listening to this question of, of the politics of artifacts and the artifacts suited to artifacts suited to certain politics. But uh, what I'm interested in is sort of how those processes uh, 
happen and how those links get made and sort of taking them as, as the question rather than the answer. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things is you note in um, the book is about activists thinking that there is a need for a media system in order to get their ideas out. So ideas were great. It's great to have them, but if there is no way to distribute those ideas, then um, you're not fulfilling, I guess, the movement. Um, and therefore, the, the the use of low-power radio helps fulfill this. But also, I was wondering about the actual, and you talk about this, the, the tinkering, the building, the production portion. Is there underlying... Um, aspect of that that goes along with the building of the media system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, radio works certain ways, you know, well with this sort of fable. Um, and I'll also note, once again, I did start this project in 2003, and mm-hmm. so the conversations I was having with people then, in some ways, well, it's complicated, but, you know, there wasn't social media, for example. Uh, or as it's, I don't even know when we like started having Friendster and all these things, but you know, the whole sort of thing about Twitter and Facebook being those platforms for everybody, um, hadn't, you know, those platforms didn't exist. The rhetoric existed though. And arguably those platforms got built because the rhetoric existed. Anybody can express themselves on the internet. Anybody can go say whatever they want, address whomever they want on the internet. And so the radio, radio activists were grappling already with that, you know, kind of head scratcher. People were putting to them, well, why do you care about this dinosaur technology? Why are you advocating for more radio and people that have access to radio and there's this glorious thing called the Internet? And they were saying, you know, partly um, if radio weren't valuable, incumbent broadcasters would just be, you know, running off in droves, and they obviously weren't. Um, part of it, I think, was, again, they, they believe in certain kinds of social relationships, again, having to do with, you know, relationships between neighbors and local relationships and uh, power being enacted uh, and, you know, shared at a, at a local level, kind of community autonomy and self-determination, uh, which arguably is harder to achieve if the media system that you're working with is owned by people who live elsewhere, owned by people who have large amounts of capital and social power that people in communities don't have. So that's part of why they were seizing on radio. Um, I think it was both a kind of material and a symbolic thing. Uh, but I think in certain ways those questions, you know, they're still just as pressing today. You know, what we're seeing about... Um, again, the sort of hype and um, euphoria and critical, uh, you know, pessimism too, some about, I don't know, Twitter revolution or something. There's still a very basic question of who owns those platforms, right? Access to them is not given. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is something I go over with my students all the time. They treat these platforms as if they're commons, but they're actually not, and access to them could be, and we've we've seen some of this in other countries, you know, Facebook is or is not manipulating, you know, which Ukrainian dissidents are getting messages out and 
blah, blah, blah. But the point is, you know, having a platform for address um, that's one that's actually materially and symbolically, not just symbolically thought of as being, you know, a medium for the people. I think that that's still something we want to be, you know, uh, holding out as an ideal. And in a way, I think community, community radio uh, therefore has a kind of symbolic valence that's separate from its material import because people just kind of get it. Oh, you know, if this were in the community and owned by regular folks and we could all listen to it and all potentially speak on it, you know, that is a different mode than either broadcast, which has also undergone shifts, mm-hmm. or social media as it's, you know, currently uh, constructed, mm-hmm. rather. So, so the localism aspect of particularly low power radio is significant and, and important for, um, particularly these activist groups, um, because then they are actually part of the, the, the community. Again, local, I think local and community are both words that do a lot of work, but they're actually quite devilish in, in terms of what they actually sort of specifically mean. Mm-hmm. But at, at the very least, the idea that these platforms, um, people have the legal right to access them and that they're even, you know, in the U.S., the spectrum is understood to be owned by the public and right. leased by the government. And having a space that's for community address that's owned by the public that the public can use, that's again, materially and symbolically a pretty important thing, and it is distinct from a corporate social media platform, even if the way people treat it and think that they can use it is as a means of public address. Mm-hmm. So the book is Low Power to the People, Pirates, Protests, and Politics in the FM, in FM Radio Activism. And I was wondering if you were to give like an elevator pitch what the book really is about. We've been talking about it, obviously, so hopefully everybody has been paying attention. But if they just somehow stumble upon this podcast and they stumble onto this time right now, what would you say that your book is about? Oh, gosh. Uh, You should have told me to have cliff notes ready. Um, (laughs) I'm kidding. Now, the, the sort of three points that I say that the book is about, one really important one I think has to do with this politics of expertise and participation. We hear a lot about participatory media and participatory ideals, but when we're talking about technology, which has its own legacy um, of, you know, who has access and who has control over it, the ideal of participation uh, and the social reality there are not are not identical, and I think we want to have you know social and historical sensitivity to what it might mean to make a more participatory society or to make technology more participatory, but we don't want to do that naively and without being attuned to the different ways that expertise uh, has mattered and has been you know, vested in certain kinds of people. So that's one. Two is, this is maybe banal-seeming, but it's really worth saying, I think, is the idea that 
new technology doesn't necessarily eclipse old technology. And old technology doesn't necessarily stop developing or being relevant when there's, quote, new technology. Um, there's a wonderful piece by Steve Shapin. Uh, well, now I'm spacing on the title of it, but it was a review of um, the stock of the old. And he makes the point that even though we get very, very worked up about new technology and the latest iPhone or whatever, if we actually look around in our environments, we're surrounded by what he calls a palimpsest of old and new. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a matter of empirical record, uh, neither scholars nor the sort of wider culture is um, well, well served to uh, forget that, you know, this sort of fetish for novelty leaves us with a, a blind spot about what's actually going on in our material world. And then the third point is, again, this issue of how politics get artifacts and, and vice versa, and that we want to look at all rhetorical claims about what a given technology or communication technology does. We want to look at them very carefully and think of them not only as a descriptive statement you know, the internet is democratizing, but as a rhetorical statement where the person making that claim is trying to convince you that the internet is democratizing, for example. And so the process of um, how those interpretations of technologies get made uh, and become real is, is the sort of third point of the book. So in all cases, it's actually a much bigger story than that of low-power radio. That Said, of course, the book is very much about low-power radio, and it's about this activist struggle to secure a more democratic media environment, and there's a lot of policy stuff in it that we haven't even talked about um, of these people, again, simultaneously going out into the wild to build stations and going into Washington to get uh, policy made. And so it's you know very particularly about radio and the particular struggle there mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So, what's next for you? Okay, well, right now, let's see. As I said, I started this project thinking I was looking at this interplay between old and new tech. Um, And that has, remains important, and I do a lot of my teaching, for example, is both history of media technology and digital media and society kind of stuff. So those things remain important. But I also did kind of back into these issues of social identity and expertise. Um, And what I've been working on more recently is looking at initiatives that purport to address diversity in tech. (laughs) And so I've been looking at, especially in... I don't know, free or open technology cultures. So think of open source, think of hackerspaces, technology collectives. Um, There's been this kind of outcry, especially over the last few years, about the fact that on the one hand, you know, in its very name, these cultures, these communities are supposed to be open. Anybody can come join them. Anybody can come work on, you know, the software project or anybody's welcome at this you know, hackerspace. Um, but in practice, a lot of who shows up is um, same old folks, mostly white, mostly men, mostly 
uh, more educated and with various kinds of capital. And yeah, so I'm looking at those issues and particularly there's a lot of pushback in um, open source saying, yes, these communities are open, but there are all these other structural reasons and cultural reasons why we're not seeing that openness. Uh, so earlier when you said, why doesn't everybody learn to code? Um, that's basically, you know, in a nutshell, that's some of what I'm looking at now. Um, why doesn't everybody learn to code? Whether coders should learn more social theory um, or history or sociology, um, but particularly at yeah, this question of diversity in tech and um, to whom that matters with what consequences. Again, taking that as more of a question than an, an answer. Well, great. Well, hopefully you'll, you'll come back on New Books in Technology. The book is Low Power to the People, Pirates, Protests, and Politics in FM Radio Activism. It's available from MIT Press. It was published in last November. Um, it should be available everywhere quality books are sold. And uh, we've had a special guest on, uh, Christina Dunbar-Hester, the author of the book, Low Power to the People. And this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Jasmine, for having me. It's been really a pleasure. And um, I really, I looked at the other books in the series and I really was delighted to be a part. This has been New Books in Technology. Have a great week.